0: Hi, I'm Betsy Bournes, and you're listening to The Broadcast, featuring the artists who perform at the Broad stage here in Santa Monica, California. Today I'm speaking with world-renowned paleoanthropologist, Lee Berger. Berger is best known for his spectacular discoveries of Australopithecus sediba, which introduced the world to a new species of early human, and Homo naledi, which signaled a profound change in our understanding of evolution. In our talk, Lee and I discuss everything from discovering fossils with his nine-year-old son to how it feels winning the scientific lottery. Trust me, this is one you won't want to miss. I have to tell you that the first place I came across your name was when I was writing for Friends, and one of our main characters was a paleontologist, and I needed to find out about Australopithecus and looked you up. And in fact, the character Ross on Friends spoke about your work. You are my inspiration. Oh, then. That
1: is so fantastic to hear. You know, I I think one of the things that we as scientists, we're always trying to, you know, make these discoveries. And, and we always speak with colleagues largely. And it's wonderful when uh, discoveries like Sediba or uh, Homo naledi actually slip into the popular mind because that's really why we should be doing this. Right, it's a story about human origins. Yes, I mean it's about it's our story.
0: Right. Well, I I'm going to ask you further questions about this. Most people have heard of a paleontologist, but you're a paleoanthropologist. And other than the fact that one is hard to pronounce and the other is impossible to pronounce, could you talk about the difference?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, anthropologists are people who study modern cultures, our uh, modern people's behavior. Uh, people tend to think of them as going to remote areas, but they also study, you know, people who live in cities. Right. Anything, not just Margaret Mead. Uh, that's right. A paleoanthropologist is someone who studies ancient humans and their behavior. Now, it's a little bit of a a misnomer because it actually comes out of the sort of 1970s. It's a very recent term. And in fact, the American sort of system, uh, the Europeans didn't use that term because they came from a different background. The sort of American paleoanthropologist actually came out of uh, degrees in anthropology, archaeology departments and such, where that is uh, founded here in the States. Europeans came out of anatomy or comparative anatomy. And so they tended to, if they talked about anthropology, would have used the term physical anthropologist. Oh, interesting. Or, or comparative anatomist. So it actually is a very recent term. And it is sort of an American invention to explain this sort of um, trying to understand human origins.
0: That's fascinating. And I know that you are, in addition to many, many other amazing things, you're best known for the 2008 discovery of Australopithecus sediba site. You got that right. Uh, Great. <laughs> oh, last 20 hours have been spent saying nothing but that. I should say it was discovered by your then 9-year-old son, Matthew. That's exactly right. If you could describe the excavation and discovery of that,
1: well, that was an extraordinary moment, and sort of it is locked into my mind. I remember it. I'd spent seventeen years in Africa uh, looking for a big discovery effectively. You know it we're a field of discovery. We're a field that that you need to have the fossils to find it. and and often, probably wrongly, paleoanthropologists are judged on, those big discoveries and in fact there's something like a less than one percent chance if you're in this field that you'll actually make one of those ever in your career ever in your career in fact the vast majority of people who do what I do or even a field uh, broadly related will never make a discovery of one of these in the wild so to speak and so I'd spent 17 years in Africa and I'd had a couple of little discoveries Um, I discovered two teeth at Gladysville right when I got to Africa uh, and moved to South Africa. That actually made National Geographic magazine two teeth. That's how that's how tough this field is. And then spent 17 years with, uh, with a few other little discoveries, but not a big one. Uh, that moment on August 15th, when uh, I just arrived at the site I discovered two weeks earlier, um, within a mile of the site that I'd spent 17 years at digging, uh, and... I said, okay, guys, go find fossils, and if you find something, call me. And Matthew said, Dad, I found a fossil. And he was 20 yards off of the site. He shouldn't even been there. He chased after uh, my dog, Tal. We're in the middle of this giant game reserve. And I almost didn't go and look because I knew if he'd found a fossil, it was going to be an antelope fossil. But I started towards him, and five meters away, I realized that uh, – both of our lives were about to change because I could see sticking out of the side of the rock a hominid clavicle. Now, that's your collarbone. And I was actually probably one of the world's only experts on that bone. I did my Ph.D. on it.
0: Oh, my God. And uh, Right place, right. right time has never <laughs> right. had more meaning.
1: So Matthew says I cursed. I don't remember that. Uh, but I took this rock and I'm looking at it, you know, going through my mind. What else could this be? And I turn the rock over, and there on the back is a jaw and a canine and other parts of what are clearly a hominid fossil. So you're sitting looking for the rarest sought-after objects on Earth. I've gone 17 years, never making a discovery, and there Matthew is holding a partial skeleton, which was about one of seven in history at that moment. Oh, my God. That would lead to the discovery of a second skeleton I would find two weeks later, and then we found more. Malapa quickly became this... Just incredible discovery. It was it was a once in a lifetime lottery win level discovery that I uh, thought would never be repeated, and I almost made that happen because I actually quit exploring almost on that moment. I quit looking because I threw myself into this. I went from one scientist to over a hundred. We had more scientific papers than you could ever imagine. Living the paleoanthropological dream, if you will. Um, and the only reason that the next discovery, the Homo naledi right. discovery, would come along um, was because I got locked out of the site because we were building a lab over it. And because we were finding these extraordinary things and had to protect it. And I had to stop and realize that I hadn't been exploring since Matthew uttered those words. Ah,
0: so you were so deeply involved in studying this, that you were no longer in the field, and you missed the opportunities that were in the field? That's exactly right. You
1: see, Malapa had uh, been discovered because I'd done this Google Earth survey, and I'd found more than 700 new cave sites in the most explored area on planet Earth. Previously, we'd only known of 130 cave sites in the region and about 18 fossil sites. I found over 70 fossil sites and 700 cave sites using this new technology and good old-fashioned walking. But I just left those behind the moment that sort of moment had occurred to me. Because, you know, if you've won the lottery, you're not going to win it twice. It's kind of like that old saying, you're certain not to if you don't buy another lottery ticket. That's how they get you. Exploration (laughs) is our lottery ticket, you know, the purchase of a lottery ticket.
0: But a lot of people don't go on to buy the second ticket. That's exactly right. That's the difference in, I think, really good and great is you you get the winning ticket, and then you have the faith in yourself and your your picking ability to say, I'm buying the one tomorrow. So you went from there to your next discovery in 2013? That's right.
1: That's right. I I thought nothing could ever be better than Malapa. And and in fact, one of the interesting things that was happening was that Colleagues were beginning to say, Oh, yeah, it's a great discovery. Lee's doing a great job with, you know, uh, public outreach and sharing and open access. But, you know, malapa's a miracle. And the moment scientists start saying miracle, it's not a good term right. in science. They're actually being critical, they're saying it's luck. I don't know if you've ever heard of the term Leakey's yes, luck. Yes, yes. You know, uh, Lewis Leakey, yes. Applied to Lewis Leakey. That wasn't a compliment that was a way of the sort of english aristocratic scientific community saying ah you know he's just lucky he's not he's not actually right. deliberately doing this in a scientific way i very manner.
0: much resent that term because it implies that there's no work involved
1: and so i was hearing that term i see i was hearing that term in conferences people are saying well oh anyone could do that with a, a discovery of that magnitude isn't he lucky and then in September of 2013, um, a little team I'd put together, consisting of a former student of mine, Pedro Boshoff, and two amateurs that we'd brought on, um, Rick Hunter and, and Steve Tucker, I'd actually sent them out to to hunt with this map of these hundreds and hundreds of sites that I had, because each one's a window into the underworld, effectively, and. I made them start, interestingly, in the places we thought we knew the best, because I had learned something from Malapa. Malapa is right next to Gladysville, and I sometimes I learned that sometimes you know we don't see the places that we know the best. It's why you can, you know, uh, have a, a post-it note from 1998 on your on your refrigerator because you're just not looking right. at it because you know that space. It's the way our brains work. Yeah. And so I sent them into the Sturtfontaine Valley. Now Sturtfontaine Valley is about oh eight miles away from, from Malapa. But that valley is the most explored in the history of this science. It's got Sterkfontein, a site called Swartkrans, and, and a site called Chromdry. Between the three of them, they are the richest hominid sites in the world, and every scientist who's ever worked has been there. So I sent them into that valley first. And they, of course, being humans, actually went to all the sites on my map that they didn't know about first, and they went to the site they thought they knew the best last because that's you, you're not going to find the posted, anything there. The
0: post-it principle was not in their consciousness. That's
1: right and and on the edge of the map, this well-mapped out rising uh, uh, star cave system, they found an area called Dragon's Back, labeled that on the map. They climbed it, which was very tricky and dangerous. Climb 150 feet underground, you climb up another 60 feet and there they found a 7.5 inch wide slot and down they went. So difficult to get down. now. Imagine these are skinny, fit cavers. You have to exhale to push yourself down. If you want to stop, you inhale and you stop.
0: I've seen footage of that, and I literally had to look away. I, I felt so claustrophobic just watching it. It was unbelievable.
1: It's extraordinary. And the people who are doing this are extraordinary. And there they found this chamber. I would see pictures... Um, uh, about uh, on October 1st that uh, confirmed that this was an extraordinary discovery. It was pictures I thought I would never see in my career. There was a hominid skeleton just laying there on the surface in dirt and it was clearly primitive. I could see that from the pictures. Uh, I actually though, because I'd engaged amateurs, I actually sent matthew down there <laughs> to actually take pictures He's either
0: the luckiest or unluckiest boy in the history of the world <laughs> well, i have to say uh, uh,
1: even where i'm an equal opportunity <laughs> non-sexist abuser of my children <laughs> my daughter megan when we started the rising star expedition just a month late after that um, she actually acted as a safety caver inside the cave going up and down that chute um, several times a day retrieving fossils and making you're sure it's a good scientists... father. Or a bad father. It's not clear.
0: You're extremely uh, one or the other. I didn't tell my wife. Before. Oh, good. Okay. So you're a good husband, too. <laughs> a
1: smart one, at least. Um, but, you know, that in that chamber, um, we would recover doing an expedition that began on November 7th, just a month later. Mm. Uh, we would uh, conduct an, a 60-person expedition. By the end of the first week, we had over, we had the richest hominid site ever discovered in history. By the end of the expedition, we had recovered more fossils than had been recovered in all of sub-equatorial Africa in the previous 90 years. It was unbelievable.
0: I have two questions about that. One, it, it made me think of the expression, he doesn't know it from a hole in the ground. And I thought of that because this was literally all discovered from a hole in the ground. Um, And I wondered, how do you know where to look? I mean, you've you've explained that you had sites everywhere. How do you know?
1: I I used to answer that with a very detailed uh, sort of answer about how I could see sites on Google Earth and what they look like and that. But I've got a new rule. I'm removing the expectations of what a fossil site should look like because what I really should have taken away from Malapa and then the rising star discovery was that you shouldn't perhaps try to be so predictive. Yes, you have to go to somewhere that has the geological potential of preserving fossils. But I I think we need to start removing mm. those preconceived ideas. Because what these discoveries are telling us is that preconceptions are what are keeping us from finding these things. Both of these discoveries were in the most explored area on planet Earth for these very things. People had been working there for ninety years, looking for this stuff, and hadn't seen it, including me, largely because we had an idea of what we were supposed to look for. Right. Neither of these sites conform to that image, so my answer is going to change from from this learning experience. That that we try to remove that, and that's why um, our exploration teams now. Um, which some of them actually consist of the, the the two amateurs actually are now professional explorers. They work for me. And some of the underground astronauts, the uh, uh, six young scientists who just happen to be women right. who were selected to uh, lead those expeditions, all of them out actually still work for us. One of them, Marine Elliott, actually leads my exploration teams. But they have a rule. They, they certainly get a free nose to go and look because – you can't make those rules anymore. That right. actually hinders science and discovery. Um, it doesn't help it,
0: right? And there's a sort of life lesson in that too—to not discount an area that you've been over in life, work, family, anything, but but stop and relook at it, and I, the answer might be there.
1: I, I call it backyard syndrome. Oh, um, the idea that uh, that the places that you think you know the best are often the places you know the least. I I do an exercise with people sometimes. I'll, I'll bring them into a new environment. I'll say, look around, and then I'll hand them two sheets of paper and ask them to leave the room. And I'll say, okay, I want you to draw that place you were just at. And I want you to draw a place you're very familiar with, your backyard, your kitchen, your living room, something like that. They will Without fail, draw the area they were just in more accurately Mm. than they will the place they think they know the best. They'll get the place they know the best very generally, but they'll miss little details because that's the way our brains work. Otherwise, we just explode with information. So there's an
0: evolutionary reason for our brains being that way.
1: The new space is the potentially dangerous right. space. And so you very quickly, I look where the exit is. I'm looking at the features around here and taking them in. Right. And they're going to retain there. Whereas my kitchen, I I know, but I kind of know where the fridge is and I know where the, I know where the important stuff is. Right. But the details, I just sort of walk
0: by. It's so interesting. It actually reminded me of The Wizard of Oz. There's no place like home. It's sort of you need to <laughs> look at, at everything to realize that Everything you you saw everything and and didn't really look at it.
1: That's right, and that's that's really the big lessons that I've taken away
0: from this, which I've reduced to a uh, to a movie <laughs> plot. I apologize, uh, but it's it's amazing. And I getting back to this excavation, one of my favorite things to read was how you got these six people.
1: Well, I, I did it the old fashioned way—a Facebook ad. <laughs>
0: you should be a spokesperson for <laughs> Facebook. My God,
1: I literally. Um, I had no idea. I, You know, after I sent Matthew down to get the second set of pictures, and he climbed up and he said, you know, I said, as he climbs, I sticks his head out and he go, I go, you know, I don't go, are you okay? I go, and? and you know, And he goes, it, you know, it's beautiful, Daddy. My hands were shaking for three minutes before I could take a picture. And I saw those pictures. I had no way of knowing if I was going to be able to accomplish this. I mean, I had in my mind I was going to do something like uh, – James Cameron or Bob Ballard does, you know, a I saw command you center, yeah, yeah and, and do wires into it and and have audio and visual. That, the technology's there. I could figure that out. But how do you find the people? So the next day, I literally posted a Facebook ad. I, I need skinny scientists.
0: And you actually, the qualifications were, I thought, the ad for the worst job I'd ever heard of. <laughs> And if you re- if you can recall what the ad called for,
1: yeah, it called for skinny scientists <laughs> that um, would uh, be willing to risk their lives and drop everything and not be paid for a month and come to South Africa in three weeks. And I'm not going to tell you what you're going to be doing, but you're going to be working in this dangerous environment. You have to wor- have underground caving experience, excavation experience, climbing experience, all these things. And you also have to have a master's or Ph.D. in paleoanthropology or physical anthropology. And I really did think at that time there'd be three human beings on Earth that might have the skills that would meet this. Um, within within 10 days, I had almost 60 applicants, 80 percent young
0: women. That's stunning. That's stunning. And these, these women, you said, are still working with you?
1: All of them in one way or another. So, um some of them are in the field exploring. Some are doing outreach, community outreach for us. Uh, two of them have moved to South Africa. Um, other of them are involved in the scientific description of this material or on, on sort of analyzing the uh, surface area or how we're interacting with communities. It's been fantastic. because, And it's a little bit surprising because sometimes these momentous moments that occur actually break groups apart. Yes, You know, they because you know you're in history. Uh, this one, we're very fortunate, has bonded all of us and we've stayed together.
0: I think that probably says more about you than everything else. You sort of changed the game in that instead of guarding your finds, as, as most people in your field do, if not all, you immediately let the information out. Um, and I was curious why you do that. So I had
1: grown up in a period uh, of... of rural Georgia uh, in an environment where, you know, I, I came from a very middle class sort of background. And when I came into paleoanthropology, because I think it was a field of scarce resources perceived to be, uh, it, it was a little bit clubby. Uh, and that is that when people would make discoveries, those were their possessions. And uh, they would assemble a tiny team. And very often the field would not get to see that material, even after it's described in some cases. It was very hard to work in that environment, and I would watch literally generations of graduate students go through who didn't have access. If you did own fossils, you were in the club. And in the 90s, I was very privileged to be director of, of, of the collection at Vitz University in South Africa, and I had this access, very privileged, but I didn't, I didn't like what was happening. Um, but I didn't have my own big discovery. I tried to do open access earlier with the collections. It actually ended up uh, hurting me quite bad, as, as the people who had came after me for doing that. Uh, then Sadiba came along. And uh, with Sadiba, I wanted to change the way that we were doing that. I, I wanted to prove that, that, that what they were saying about the harm that would come if you shared things was wrong. I gave casts away before they were described for free, to museums all around the world. I let people see the material. Um, and that proved that, that you didn't get hurt. But I hadn't gone all the way. Right. When uh, Homo naledi came along, it allowed, it gave me the opportunity. Because here we're sitting with more fossils than had ever been discovered in history. More fossils than we had from the previous, all the previous excavations in, in the region. There was no way anyone would ever be able to study those in some closed fashion. And so I decided to open it up. And very specifically sought early career scientists to be the first to engage with it because they have the most current data sets and they are the brightest and least closed-minded thinkers at right. that moment in their career. So I merged the Sediba team with that. And, and, and then when we announced it, we announced it in an open access journal, eLife, we gave the fossils away. I put them on a thing called MorphoSource, a, uh, the, the surface scan. So anyone in the world can 3D print them, check our data. And schools around the world are doing something like 40,000 downloads have been made of those materials. And, you know, and it's transformed science in South Africa because we have more resources than in all of history. I have more than 150 colleagues that work on this. The science visitation is extraordinary. uh, And I have not seen a single downside uh, to it.
0: Right. I don't know how you can stand on the shoulders of giants if the giants don't release the information. <laughs> you know, uh, if you don't do what you're doing, people are forced to recreate the wheel, it seems. I, I, I suppose
1: in an, in an area of scarce resources, though, that, that if you're in the small privileged elite, that can be
0: done. Right. No, it's – it's, it's, I would say as important as your finds are is what you've done with them and the way that you change the game that way are – the just unbelievably significant.
1: I, I, I want to give a lot of credit to my colleagues. Though. That should be a we, not an I, uh, because they also allow me to do that. Right. And for a lot of young scientists particularly, that can feel like a great deal of risk, though I hope that they all see the tremendous benefits
0: of well, it. Well, that's amazing. I just finally would like to ask what upcoming projects you have. I know that after your your great finds uh when you were told that you would be remembered for these, you said you didn't want to be remembered for for your finds. You wanted to be remembered for your next finds. So I was just wondering what your next finds are.
1: They're as big as these, um, and they're going to be announced within uh, the next month. Uh, We have made extraordinary discoveries because this time uh, we didn't stop
0: exploring. Unbelievable. Well, it's been such an honor um, to speak with you. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. I'd like to thank my guest, Lee Berger, and of course, The Broad Stage. The Broadcast is hosted and produced by myself, Betsy Bournes, and produced and edited by Christian Humes. Music composed by Matt Rapoli. Please be sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcast platform. We also ask that you take a moment to share it with a friend or write a review. Unless it's a bad review, then just shut down your computer and take a nice nap. And remember, I'm talking to you, so thanks for listening.